My parents taught me to always think about the greater good, to defend people who can't defend themselves, even if it means putting yourself at risk. I wish they could see that that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Darkness to Light, hosted by Emily and Alan Middleton. We aim to explore what takes place at the corner of theology and geekology. Episode 5, live from Jersey City, it's Ms. Marvel. Welcome to Episode 5 of Dorkness to Light. This is our show where we take a look at pop culture in terms of where those stories intersect with concepts in religion, faith, theology, and spirituality. And in this episode, we will be talking about the 2014 iteration of Ms. Marvel in which Muslim teenager Kamala Khan takes up the Marvel mantle. We'll be covering the content from the first 19 issues, which constitutes the first four trades. We're going to talk about themes of family, religion, tradition, culture, identity, which all play important roles in the stories. But first, we're just going to give a brief overview of the action in the stories. These stories are all written by G. Willow Wilson, and most of the art is by Adrian Alfana. Kamala Khan is a high schooler in Jersey City. She's a Pakistani-American from a Muslim family who writes fan fiction and plays World of Battlecraft. At a high school party, a strange mist overcomes her, and she stands face-to-face with the Avengers. Sort of. Maybe. And she wishes for the powers of Captain Marvel and wakes up in the body and original costume of Carol Danvers. She learns her new abilities and allow her to change her body's size although her fist is the easiest thing to embiggen. She eventually modests up her costume a little bit, along with some help from her friend Bruno at the convenience store, tentatively beginning a side career as a crime fighter. A bird-like being called Mr. Edison, a.k.a. the Inventor, has been doing some crazy experiments in Jersey City, and Ms. Marvel doesn't like it one bit. But she's not the only one taking on these bad guys. Wolverine arrives, and they fight a supersized alligator in the sewer and become friends sort of, and discover that runaway kids have been used in these experiments somehow. The Inhumans are at this point housed in New Adelin, a big city floating in the Hudson River. We learn that Kamala is an Inhuman, and Queen Medusa sends Kamala a companion. Lockjaw! The super team of Kamala and Lockjaw find the inventor's scary secret lab, where he's using runaways as power sources but some of them don't seem to mind. Well, they take down the inventor and bring an end to his villainous experiments. The inventor responds by attacking Kamala's school, and Medusa saves her, bringing her back to New Adeline. She can live there with her people. But Kamala Khan is already living with her people in Jersey City, isn't she? After Loki visits her school for a few issues, another strange visitor arrives, this one, A handsome, suave Muslim boy, for whom Kamala develops quite the crush. But he's not really the boy of her dreams. He is, in fact, an inhuman, and one of the more militant ones at that, and that is just not going to work for Kamala. 
in the aftermath of her first heartbreak, she's faced with an approaching cataclysm. She meets her idol, Captain Marvel, or she calls her Carol Freakin' Danvers, and they do some good. But Carol tells her, dark days are coming. And that's about the briefest that we could make 20 issues of comic books. <laughs> yeah, for a decompressed story, a fair amount of stuff happened. This is a great coming-of-age story. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of see that with the, the guest spots. That we start off with Wolverine, and she gets a sort of mentor figure, an mm-hmm. older hero who can teach her the ropes a little bit. When you need to buckle down, when you need to step back, when you need to ask for help. Loki shows up to be sort of an ally assist a little bit. An antagonist, <laughs> if you will. And of course, Queen Medusa certainly offers herself as a mentor mother figure. As the leader of Kamala's people. Though one of the things we'll talk about, one of the themes of this is identity. And who exactly her people are. Mm-hmm. Where does she belong? Mm-hmm. And then finally we have her coming full circle, and we'll talk about the first quote-unquote appearance (laughs) of Captain Marvel and the last one, but finally getting to actually meet Captain Marvel in reality and have a moment of saying, this is what I've been trying to do, is it enough? And sort of getting her her sort of grown-up hero lesson, which is you cannot save everyone. Mm, Even cats. Oh, oh don't mention sad. the kitties. We can't was, we can't, we go, can't there. go there. So, we spend a lot of time with her family. We'll talk about them more when we get to the themes and, and that stuff. But also a lot of her high school classmates, including her best buddy Bruno, who quickly learns her secret identity or is informed of her secret identity, quickly becomes her Alfred, her her uh, <laughs> dude in a van. Girl in a Cave, both of them. (laughs) I like this set of issues, these first 19 or 20, because after this, it's it's sort of the last trade that we've covered is the lead-in. We then get into Secret Wars, and you you sort of move away from the Ms. Marvel doing her own thing aspect of these stories. But she's just a delightful character. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think that G. Willow Wilson gets right is the millennial, young adult, young female aspects in terms of the friends, in terms of the fangirling. I was going to say, uh, I think the word that we want for this entire series is vibrancy. Yes. This, This series is full of life, full of excitement about everything. I'm a hero. This is the best thing ever. Horrible experiments are happening. This is the worst thing ever. Oh my gosh, I'm teaming up with Wolverine. I wrote fan fiction about you last week. People really liked it. This is really weird. I don't care. Yeah, she ends up with slight boundary issues with basically all of the heroes that she meets. There's always a point that this is getting a little creepy. Whether it's Captain Marvel or Wolverine or whoever, there's always that. Okay, you can stop sharing now. You've gone into teen overexcitement mode. Is Tony Stark really as muscly without all the armor? Okay, we're done. We're done talking <laughs> about Tony's a little body. Too much. Let's <laughs> let's move right on here. <laughs> and it's nice that this is placed not in New York City, but within sight of New York City, but in a whole different place. Mm-hmm. The idea of it being not just New Jersey but Jersey City is an important part of building community around her, building the story that she. As a newbie heroine, she is probably enough. 
Right. She's probably all Jersey she can, City. She made. can, she, she can, can she handle can, that. That can be her beat, and she can pretty much handle it. This series actually reminds me a lot of Daredevil, not just because I love both of them, mm-hmm. but we've got two very religious characters, mm, right? And both of them have very strict boundaries of this is this mm-hmm. is my city, and people have made jokes sometimes, like, "Oh yeah, Daredevil micromanages twenty blocks," but it's like <laughs> you do realize he doesn't actually have superpowers, guys. Like you, you recognize that, right? Like <laughs> Batman, really, realistically, Gotham is too big a jurisdiction for him. He can't handle that. Daredevil sets himself reasonable goals. Like, these are my people, the maximum amount of people that I can keep safe. And Kamala does the same thing. These are my people, and I am here for them, and I am one of them. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into those right. identity politics, which but, are a major through line for the whole series. The two specific comic book things that make sure we cover first. Mm-hmm. What do we think of her costume? What do we think of her power set? Love it. Love it. <laughs> I occasionally have some not really issues with marvel powers but just marvel powers function very differently than dc powers marvel powers within the marvel universe makes sense that it's sort of smaller scale you don't have as many people who just straight up are like i have super speed and i can go as fast as i want whenever i want all the time no problems or people who are just crazy insane strong you have a couple but most people are more like kamala where she is a shapeshifter but not in, like, the chameleon boy sense of it's easy. That's just part of her biology. It's really difficult for her, and it's shown her her limits of being able to stretch this far or go under this tiny crack. Is Wolverine the one who tells her? There's someone who tells her at one point, you know, you could just get yourself super, super thin and slide under that door. Coulson. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, there's there's an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. crossover. crossover. Right, right, right. Colson shows up and it's like, oh no, the door's blocked. And he's like, well, there's about a quarter inch gap at the bottom of that door. You could just flatten yourself and slide under it. She, oh, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. So she only has the one power, but it's used really creatively. Right. I love her costume. I love her costume so much. I love that she kind of hated her costume in the beginning because <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a costume. It was a bathing suit. Right. What did they call it? Like a, a burkini? Covers her all the way from her neck to her knees. And she's like, oh, I can't go swimming in that. That's ridiculous. I'll just, I'll just not go swimming. So she just kept her bathing suit in the back of the closet. I love that it's still a bathing suit. Right. Because people make jokes about a lot of female mm-hmm. superheroine costumes. It's like, well, you're just wearing a bathing suit. She's also just wearing a bathing suit. But she has a full red bodysuit underneath it. Yes. That and basically covers everything except from her elbows to her fingertips. Yeah. It's about the only exposed skin. Mm-hmm. And it even covers, like, her neck and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's a great costume design. Red, blue, and yellow. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. have your primary Classic. colors. Classic. No capes, but epic scarf. I was going to say, the the quote-unquote cape is one of the cooler aspects. Because it's not a cape. It's sort of the two-part scarf that is flies off behind it. Kind of like an aviator is almost, mm-hmm. you get the feel. That's the effect, which, of course, gives artists oh, a yeah. cool chance to do some creative work with portraying that. And it also gives us something that we'll we'll talk about this in the first uh, issue. There is a discussion of wearing he- head coverings, and Kamala does not, but her best friend does. She herself is not a hijabi. She doesn't wear her scarf all the time. She just wears it to prayer. But it's there. She doesn't wear the scarf as a head scarf. She wears it as a scarf scarf. Right. But it's a part of her design. 
So let's let's move specifically in, into those sort of religious ideas and, and concepts. And a lot of it, it's hard to pull out a little bit because we've got religion, culture, tradition, family, all worked in together. It's hard to pull one of them out. Are her parents this way? Is she this way because they're Pakistani? Is it because they're American immigrants? Is it because they're Muslim? Is it yes, 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 and yes to other things as well? It's, But I think that adds a level of complexity because our identities are not just one thing. Mm-hmm. It's a mixture of all of these things. And, and who we are as people is how all these various identities, sometimes contradictory identities that we all have, how they manifest, how they work out. So I like the depth of that. On the cover of the first trade, which does have one of the best covers, like Mm -hmm. ever, um, there is a quote from ComicsAlliance.com that says, this may be the most important comic published in 2014. It's hard to argue with that Mm -hmm. because not a lot of other comics delve into this, this, this very unique experience of being first-generation Pakistani, Muslim, American, teenager, and balancing all of these aspects of her identity and who are her people. Are her people her peers or her family, members of her mosque that she maybe only sees once a week? Mm -hmm. Is it the Inhumans who she's genetically related to, but she has no personal ties to Mm -hmm. them? She doesn't, they don't share her culture. She didn't grow up with them. They don't have this traditional bond. Where does she belong? And it's sort of everywhere and nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks to the, the immigrant story in general of making your way in this world, making your way in America, figuring out where you fit in, how you fit in the process of acculturation. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many other layers laid onto this, some of it just by being human that any of us would experience then you throw in the superpowers on top of it, the Inhumans, Avengers, X-Men. You know, she's interacting with people from all of these various teams. Yeah. And S.H.I.E.L.D., it, S.H.I.E.L.D., and there's again this, who exactly are my people? Mm-hmm. And she, and when she first teams up with Wolverine, that's her first thought. She's, wait, am I a mutant? Can I go to, can I go to the X school? That would be kind of cool. I would want to belong mm-hmm. with them. And then finding out she's not a mutant, right. and that actually sort of hurts a little bit. Speaking of the immigrant story, her best friend Bruno mm-hmm. has a, a scene in, I believe it's volume three. Bruno has a really strong crush on her throughout the entire series. Mm-hmm. And, and Bruno, it's cute and occasionally heartbreaking for him. I would say mostly heartbreaking. <laughs> There's a, a scene really early on where Kamala kind of tries to tell him to stop mother henning so much and that she's going to go out to this party and there's nothing he can do to stop her because you know he's not her brother he doesn't get to dictate her life and she says to bruno god you sound just like my parents too bad you're not pakistani otherwise they'd totally be throwing me at you and he says under his breath yeah too bad mm-hmm. he would be the perfect son-in-law <laughs> But he's but a Catholic Italian. That's actually a point that they, they make later on, this idea of sort of the convergence of these identities. I think it's her older brother who we need to talk about. He points out, you know, this is never going to work. Whatever crush you have on her, it's not going to work out. She's Pakistani. You're Italian. She's Muslim. You're Catholic. On both sides, the intersection 
of national identity and religion. That combination is what makes Bruno who he is and who makes Kamala who he is. And I like the fact that they called it out by by comparing it to another very common, Mm -hmm. that combination of here in New Jersey, it's the Italian Catholic or it could be the Boston Catholic or might be the the Southern Protestant or whatever. You know, that in the U.S., we are used to this combination. Mm -hmm. You know, the combination of culture and geography and identity and religion in that that conversation, Bruno even says, we're both children of first-generation immigrants. Right. And he says, like, my grandparents are still in Italy. Mm-hmm. Like, he's not just Italian-American in that he's an American of Italian descent. Like, his grandparents are in Italy. He speaks Italian <laughs> at home. When he goes to visit the, the cousins, everybody speaks Italian because his parents were the first ones to leave. From his perspective, he sees that he and Kamala are alike because they're both first-generation immigrants. But he has this entire history of being Italian Catholic in America in the New York area. There's a community, a a large widespread community that he can sort of tap into. What Amir, Kamala's older brother, says is Kamala doesn't have that. There's not as many of us. We Mm -hmm. need to stick together. And I'm sorry. And it's actually very, it's almost sweet that Amir tries to say it like, this isn't anything about you. We love you. Right. You're a great friend. You're wonderful. We love you. But, but but you will never be allowed to marry my sister. Right. And even sort of implies, and your grandparents wouldn't come to the wedding if you married a Muslim girl. Right. It's a problem on both sides. Mm-hmm. If we took it back a few generations, it exactly. would be a problem. And Amir just says, like, this is futile. Like, Mm -hmm. you have to know this isn't going anywhere. Even if she likes you, even if you love her, even if you date each other for like seven years, you can never be more than that because your parents might be okay with it. Your grandparents will not be. My parents might understand it, but they will not give their blessing. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about her family. Mom and dad, her and the older brother. And you made an, an interesting point in our talking through some of this, that the parents are somewhat trying to give their kids an American experience. Yes. They are moderates, perhaps, yeah, I would, I would say in comparison. Traditional moderates. Mm-hmm. That, you know, they're, they're holding on to their identity, mm-hmm. clearly. And as you said, they would not be excited about the wedding, that sort of thing. So, I mean, there are lines that they're drawing. But they're also an, attempting to become American. And they they understand and support Kamala's choice not to wear a hijab. Right. Like and they're like, "Okay, that's fine. You're a, you're American. You're not going to wear a headscarf except in the mosque because right. that is proper. You do that and you will come to prayers. You will come to prayers, you will go to mosque, in the mosque you will dress appropriately, but you don't have to dress like you're going to church when you're going to school." Right. Some of her friends do stay a little more on that traditional side. She's a little more on the modern side. And her brother is quite on the almost fundamentalist side. I would he, s- he does refer to himself in that way at one point, doesn't he? It's a it's a, a great line where he says, oh yeah, nobody ever listens to Amir the Fundy. And, and in this particular case, he was correct. He was totally 100%, right. He was 100% but, correct. But again, but because he is the most traditional of the family. Mm-hmm. When Kamala gets lockjaw, <laughs> he's very panicked about that because dogs are haram and the dog cannot come in the house they're going to have to clean everything he's going to have to do extra prayers like the house has been defiled by the dog like the parents don't really care they're like 
That's a really big dog. Well, I guess <laughs> I guess the rats aren't the only thing that are bigger in Jersey City. <laughs> this dog's like 195 pounds. And it's great because what does she do? She respects her parents' wishes, leaves the dog outside. She's talking on the phone with a friend. Oops, I think the dog just teleported into my room. <laughs> oh, my parents are not going to be happy about this. But your your point was, we tend to think, or it's almost a stereotype, that every succeeding generation will maybe be more modern, mm-hmm. less traditional than the one before. But in the case of the cons, sort of the parents are in the middle. The son is more traditional, more conservative. And then the daughter is a little more, would be more modern. A little more less American. Traditional. Yeah, a little more American. And Kamala's best friend does wear her hijab. Right. And her parents are actually very upset about it. In the very first scene of issue one, Nakia and Kamala have gone to visit the Circle K, or the Circle Q, <laughs> as it is called. The convenience store. Uh, where Bruno works. And Kamala's salivating over the hot dogs of, oh, if only, if only. And Nakia's sort of being dismissive and like, really, why would you even want to eat something that's that's haram? Like, I don't get it. And then, like, some jock and some cheerleader from their school wander in, and they have a a little discussion. A little awkward cultural conversation. Yes, when the cheerleader attempts to sort of stir up some casual conversation with Nakia about her headscarf. And it starts off very well-intentioned. It's, oh, your scarf is so pretty. I love that color. And then it gets increasingly uncomfortable. But, like, nobody made you wear that. Like, your father isn't pressuring you. Like, you're not going to get, like, honor killed or something. I'm, I'm just concerned. And Nakia says, actually, my dad wants me to take it off. He thinks it's just a phase. So, in her case, her parents okay. very much want her to be like Kamala. Like, be an American. Be an American. I'm an American. And she's like, no, this is really important to me. And they're like, why? You're literally making things so much more difficult for yourself right. if you could just acculturate faster. And she's like, don't want to. If there's something that teens are good at. It's, it's not m- doing what their parents tell them. And making their lives harder for, because of it. Just yeah. say no. Yeah, pretty much everyone here between the ages of 15 and 25 is like, not going to do what my parents say. <laughs> but I, I love that first issue because it really does lay a lot of that groundwork in terms of the culture. We meet the family, these varying views about how these aspects interact. You've got a scene at the dining room table where all of the cons are ready to eat, but the older brother's not finished praying yet. This is something that some of maybe the more charismatic or Pentecostal some, listeners in our audience some, might Some southern be, listeners might, might be understand. able to uh, please, sympathize. Please wrap up the prayer. Come on. Div. Dinner's getting cold. Come on. Come on. And also, Lord. <laughs> aye, aye, We've aye, been yeah. here for 12 minutes. <laughs> but I do love the fact that some of the things that, that uh, are happening in this family, I can identify with to some extent. You know, I've seen you, I've seen the evangelical version of this. You see a lot of yourself in in in, in Abu Khan in in, <laughs> in the dad. dad. Yeah, he does have a pretty great line. Amir, if you don't stop praying long enough to eat, you'll starve one day. <laughs> Later on, there's some family trauma, and we actually learn that the 
father was the one who pressured the family a little more to come to to America. So they get, you know, in in the family stress, the mom sort of plays the I didn't we, we even want I didn't want to come to America card under times of stress. The, we Those we came to America out. because it was going to be safer. Then once we got here, we learned about school shootings and date rape drugs <laughs> and we should have just stayed back there. The worst you had to worry about was a pipe bomb like do want to mention one thing we mentioned that they're uh, Pakistani. And I just think that was a really great choice. Mm-hmm. G. Willow Wilson herself grew up or spent a lot of time in Egypt. And so, you know, she could easily have, have placed it there. But if you place the story closer to the heart of the Middle East, mm-hmm. any of those countries, you're laying in some political things. If it's Egypt, Libya, Syria... Lebanon. We can go down the list. Palestine. Yeah. You're adding an extra layer. And even though that is what the author is most familiar with, mm-hmm. by moving it into Pakistan, you're not bringing an Amerocentric sort of issue to it. I just thought that was a really good choice. Mm-hmm. And obviously, so G. Willow Wilson is herself Muslim. And so even though the, the nationality of our crew has changed from what she's personally familiar with obviously she's bringing a ton of knowledge and experience to mm-hmm. this and per- yeah personal experience mm-hmm. but i think that was just a great choice to move it to the most politically neutral of any sort of muslim majority country you could come up with because mm-hmm. as much stuff as there is in here there's not political right there's not like overt military right implications mm-hmm. so we talked about the family that the parents are not complete totalitarian, like, oppressors. (laughs) But they're still parents, and so she still, of course, feels oppressed and does indeed sneak out to the party, which her parents said, absolutely not. You're not going out at night. It isn't safe for a young girl. And she's like, oh, my gosh, guys, it's just a party. Like, there's not going to be drugs. There's not going to be green terror, terrogen mist that are going to turn me into a superhero. No big weird. Nothing's going to Nothing weird's going to happen. It's just kids and... So she sneaks out and goes to the party, runs into the same cheerleader from before who's like, oh, hey, I didn't think you were coming. I thought you weren't allowed to hang out with heathens on the weekend. But then there is a scene at the party where someone gives her some juice to drink. So oh, this is just juice. Yes. With a little vodka. And, and she's, so she spits it out. Right. Exactly. So she is either she's respecting her parents' wishes or to what what extent a teen does, she's mm-hmm. internalized those for herself. Yep. And so that's a choice that she's making. They and of course, of course then, joke and laugh at her a little bit about mm-hmm. it. You know, but so. Bruno comes mm-hmm. to the fence and this is the point where she's like, You sound like my parents. <laughs> you know. If only you were Pakistani, you'd fit right in and he's like oh, <sighs> Poor thing. <laughs> poor Bruno. Like throughout this whole thing, poor Bruno. So she gets lost in the mist that's wafting in bruno goes to try and find her and she just passes out cue trippy trippy dream sequence where captain america and iron man and carol danvers all like descend from heaven like the ancient prophets and appear before her and start speaking to her in urdu and kamala's like since when did you speak urdu and the not captain marvel is basically like i'm in your brain so of course i speak urdu (laughs) she has a a moment there of trying to 
wrestle with her own identity and who she is and what she wants. Iron Man says, you know, you stand at a crossroads. Captain America says, you know, you thought if you disobeyed your parents, your classmates would accept you, but they don't accept you. They just laugh at you. What side of yourself do you feel like you need to betray in order to fit in? And she has a a crisis of conscience. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't know who I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And Captain Marvel says, who do you want to be? And Kamala basically says, you. And when she becomes Captain Marvel, she has Captain Marvel's skin tone and hair color at first. And that's a strange moment for our poor Pakistani dark-haired immigrant. Yeah, and as soon as she sees herself, thinks, okay, I think I may have made a mistake. (laughs) It starts wearing off right away as Mm -hmm. she starts... Like, kind of reverting, trying to keep her shape and realizing, like, sort of what her powers are actually doing and how she started looking like that and bits of her start falling apart. And so it's a very, again, Mr. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. She can't control her arms. Like, one arm is long. She's trying to walk and her feet are giving out under her and her knees are bending backwards and she's just trying to hold herself together. She has a, a monologue at the start of issue two. It's like my skin is one big muscle that has tensed up. I think I'm going to puke. This is what I asked for, right? So why don't I feel strong and confident and beautiful? Why do I just feel freaked out and underdressed? She says, I've got to get back to the river. I've got to get home. I have to fix this. Freaked out by both her physical transformation and her really putting into words her difficulties with her identity. She makes it back to the river when she sees the jock dude and the cheerleader They're drunk, and she's trying to get away from the jock dude, and he's trying to hold on to her, and she ends up falling into the river. And so Kamala goes to save the girl Zoe, of course turning into Captain Marvel with the whole blonde and white and reaches out her arm and is able to pull Zoe to safety, but then everyone's still just freaked out because Captain Marvel, what's wrong with your arm? (laughs) Like, that's not what's supposed to happen. So she has saved someone for the first time, but like the drinking the alcohol on accident, she's like, I don't feel accepted. Mm -hmm. I just feel like an even bigger freak. Because now I don't even feel like myself. She sneaks back into the house and Emir catches her. What's going on? Kamala's acting weird, talking about blonde hair and saying, I'm your (laughs) sister. He's like, you're obviously my sister, Kamala. Did you sneak out? Are you high? So she's in some pretty big trouble, starting a uh, an arc, a new normal for Kamala in the series, <laughs> which is Grounded. And that happens uh, regularly. And we mentioned, you know, she has the, the family connections, but also the church connections. And we do have some scenes that take place at the mosque with her imam, Sheikh Abdullah, who does the uh, the lesson for the teens. And he does get it done pretty well, I think. He He's in a couple of scenes, both this sort of group scene where he's teaching, I'm going to put it in my language, the entire Sunday school, mm-hmm. the, the the youth group. And, and then later he has some one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. with Kamala as well. And we have a, the moment for the first time that we see inside of the mosque. It's, mm-hmm. There is the partition up, that the right. men are on one side and the women are on the other side. And so there's a little discussion about that. And Kamala's like, it's just really hard for me to focus. When I can't actually, like, see you. So there's some talking about that and what can we learn from this. And Mm -hmm. 
He, he does not come off as crazy pants. He comes off as your standard conservative Sunday school teacher who your modern teenager is <laughs> just like, oh, you don't understand me. And again, it's not the idea that every one of these teenage girls is rebelling and questioning this. Yeah, Nakia's the headscar- right there. Yeah, Nakia like, all the time saying, shh, 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 shh. Be quiet. This is the way it is. Listen, respect. So you get sort of the entire range of reactions, which I think, again, is one of the strengths of the story. Sometimes the threat of the one-on-one meeting with the Sheik is used. No spoilers. She does eventually have to speak with Sheik Abdullah. And he actually sort of comes off as, as a somewhat understanding. He is an understanding religious mentor mm-hmm. leader figure. He's he's not going to be your like perfect modern anything. He is part of the the religious tradition and speaks from that. It's every priest is not going to be Father Lantum. They can't all be <laughs> be like perfect superhero leaders, but he makes good points. Mm-hmm. But he's not a fire and brimstone or whatever the equivalent the, would be. Yes. Yeah. Kamala does of course sneak out in order to go superhero. That's what you do. And this is the first time that we get to see her and the burkini. And that's the first fight that she and her mom have over the her superheroing is what could you possibly be doing in your room that requires a burkini at 10 o'clock at night? Kamala gets the great line of, uh, well, obviously I need it so I can go party with my 10 atheist boyfriends. Which is <laughs> perfect. This series really does get teen speak. And as well as we said early on, teen attitude. Again, she's she's a gamer. She's a fanfic writer. She's all of those things as well. And and those aspects don't seem forced in. It's a very natural part yeah, of her character. Yeah. I, I don't get the sense that they're just a few buzzwords that the author has figured out will make it seem like the author knows about teen speak. It seems much more... Uh, organic to yes. the character than that. And so when uh, when Kamala sneaks back in, of course, she is now wearing the burkini and no shoes and she's all beat up and Abu makes her Ami go into the other room and she's like... They have the and he's like, father-daughter okay, discussion. Okay, okay, sweetie, you need to sit down and get some learning. And what I like, maybe it's because I'm a father, he has some good points. Again, he is not completely out of line. I want what's best for you. I want what's best for the family. You're my only daughter. And there's a lot of pressure on young people these days. And so he's got the compassion, I think. He's got the true love of a father for his little baby girl. He makes some fair points. Yes, he's he's understanding. (laughs) Like, she is going through a lot. Right. But he's like... Also, still grounded, and you have to go talk to Sheikh Abdullah. But the scene ends with a big bear hug from him. Because he is a humongous person, especially compared to teeny tiny mama. Oh my gosh. The mom, the mom is so small. And the, the sizes seem to change yes. based on the uh, emotions of the people involved. <laughs> yeah, there are times when dad's twice as big as mom. Times when she's, he's five times as big as mom, depending on, on what the scene requires. And then we do have another sort of family event. Which is sort of the, the wrap-up at the mm-hmm. end of Trade 1. That she's she's got her costume, she's established herself as Miss Marvel, a hero in her own right, but gets in a fight right before the big family party and has to go to the party smelling like, you know, 
Jersey City garbage. <laughs> we get the idea that she's not meeting her family's expectations, but that she doesn't necessarily want those particular expectations on her. Exactly. Especially from her mom, that her mom is very much like, you need to find a nice, respectable Muslim boy, <laughs> date him with the full knowledge and supervision of another trusted family member for two to three years, get married, and get me grandchildren. And Kamala's <laughs> like, but what if I'm not interested? We've all seen the coming-of-age story, or even the parental pressure story, but we haven't seen it from this perspective. And I, I think that's what makes this, this story quite unique, compelling, and, and really quite excellent. It is both unique and universal. But there's parts of that story that everyone has experienced, right. even if you aren't a young, first-generation, brown immigrant girl. Mm -hmm. But there's, it's a very relatable story and a very specific story, which Correct. is what makes it so good. Agreed. Again, she, she does have this grounding scene with Sheikh Abdullah. And again, it's not totally dissimilar to the confession scene in Daredevil's season one, where she's almost telling him I've that has responsibilities hero. and there's people but i can help people and he just looks at her side eye what are you not telling me nothing i mean nothing that i can't not tell you <laughs> okay kid let me lay down some knowledge and this is the the opening sequence to the wolverine team up where at the end he ends with when the student is ready a mentor will appear and so of course wolverine happens let me just say, not the world's greatest mentor. I mean, not in, no. Not in, it's not a position he seeks out often. But, but he, he, he keeps getting does. thrust into yes, it. that is true. I don't know why people keep wanting Wolverine to be their tutor. He's not good at it. In issue nine, we get Inhumans. Mm -hmm. And when the school is attacked, Kamala is knocked out but she's still in her costume so bruno is trying to sort of cover for her a little bit cause she wasn't fully able to get into costume so cops are coming in the teachers are coming in and lockjaw shows up to teleport her away to new atalan where she wakes up and is completely freaked out by this this mm -hmm. tall red-headed crazy-haired lady and saying crazy things about space aliens to be fair, I think most of us would be freaked out in that situation. And Medusa tells her, That's a, don't worry, you're home. Uh, I'm pretty sure my home is on Grove Street, ma'am. No, no, your house is at Grove Street. But your home, your origin is here among your people. My people? And this sort of hammers it over the head a little bit. But it's okay, if you have a theme, you can say it subtly in some places. You can say it more overtly in some places. Yeah, and we're now into issue nine, so this is yes. this is sort of the peak right. that we have had her tension religiously, ethnically, socially, culturally. All of those tensions have been throughout the first mm -hmm. eight issues, but this sort of puts a capper on it because those are all things that she has always identified with. She's mm -hmm. always had that struggle. And then here's a new one. To here's throw a into new the mix. thing to throw in on top of that. On top of all those things, you're also an inhuman. Surprise! And this is the one that she actually does reject. Right. That she's mm -hmm. like, this is not my place. This is not my people. I am not going to stay here and you can't keep me. Lockjaw, take me home. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, when she gets there, her parents are freaking out because her school almost exploded and she wasn't in the wreckage. She's able to smooth that over. And this is mm-hmm. a yes. is where is home? And you can be your home is where the heart is. But like <laughs> home is her family and Bruno mm-hmm. and her school friends. And Jersey City. She's very specific. She has a, a nice little litany of what it means to be not just American, not just in not New t- Jersey, but what it means to be from Jersey City. Hey, man, this is Jersey City. We talk loud, we walk fast, and don't take any disrespect. Don't mess. So she, again, has adopted many of these identities. And, mm-hmm. and the issue, the question, the theme is how do all these things work themselves out, specifically in this person? Yeah. And for her, she does as long as she's in Jersey City, it all mm-hmm. makes sense. Right. <laughs> and as soon as she gets ported across the Hudson, she's like, my whole life yep. is completely out of whack. <laughs> my identities are out of sync, and I don't know what I'm doing, and I've lost control of my life. I'm just going to say this again, much like Daredevil. Mm-hmm. She is a hero who's very tied to her place. Yes. Which yes. I love. Mm-hmm. I love that having that very passion of this is the place that I belong. And really, this is the only place that I belong. All of her other identities are important, but I think if her, if she had like one overarching identity, like her primary identity is from Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then immediately under that is superhero, <laughs> nerd, and Pakistani, right. American right. Muslim, mm-hmm. like as one unit. Right. And that tends to be a DC thing. Mm-hmm. Right, where the hero identifies with a city. And part of the issue with that is they're not real cities. So mm-hmm. there's something different about Daredevil identifying again, these ten blocks yes. inside. This is mine. That count as Hell's Kitchen or her in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a specific real locale or something almost more identifiable to that. Yes. The Avengers are from New York. New York is a state. Like, I don't mean the state of New York. I mean the city of New York is a <laughs> it's state. It's huge enough to, yeah. That place is enormous. It's absolutely unwieldy. It is a country unto itself. (laughs) So it kind of works that there's like 75 heroes that are from New York. New York needs 75 heroes. But like we said earlier, you know, Jersey City just needs one. Provided (laughs) that she's really good. Then we have another great family scene. We've talked a little bit about it before in terms of the plot. But in issue 13, she meets the perfect Muslim boy. Kamran. Who's a friend a friend of the family who sent him to America for his education and he's pre-med and he's devout and he volunteers at the mosque like on Wednesdays and like goes volunteers at like a soup kitchen and he plays World of Battlecraft. He's about as perfect a boy as Kamala and her parents, even her brother approves. Well, just somewhat. He mostly approves. Even her brother does not deny it <laughs> well, that way. Yes, the the two of them are moving way too fast. Well, it's been yes. like twelve hours, and they try to maybe touch Almost pinkies on hey, the hey, street. Whoa, whoa, whoa! And, and the brother Amir boom. pops out of nowhere. Maintain a three foot gap at all times, please. And she's, ah, oh, Amir, you're so weird. When a man and woman are together, the third is Shaitan, <laughs> Satan. If you grew up in the church, go to the school dance and leave one foot for the Holy Spirit. <laughs> exactly. You heard that. <laughs> so Amir gets to 
be that guy. And then the perfect boy becomes perfecter because not only is he Muslim and from the same town, not just from Pakistan, from but Karachi. From, from Karachi, where she grew up, and he's a nerd, and he's handsome, and he's pre-law, he's also an inhuman. And if by this point you have thought, this he is, is too good to be this true. This is suspiciously perfect. <laughs> you are correct. Because he and the inhuman freak of the week that mm-hmm. Kamala takes down are both minions for a militant group right. of inhumans that kidnap her and attempt to force her to join them because she simply belongs with them. At least Medusa implied that, but did give her a choice. And this is a more forceful, more militant approach to being an inhuman. Yeah, there's some very um, pleasant kidnapping in a really nice sports car that ends with Kamran, like, tasing her and throwing her in jail. So, you know, maybe not the most romantic end that we could have ever possibly imagined. But again, we get this idea of, who are you? This is the perfect mirror of who she is. It, this is who she perfectly belongs right. with. Right. Checks every box. This is this is the guy made to complete you. Mm-hmm. But... No. Nope. Nope. Calls Bruno. Get a water taxi to get her off New Adelan. And it's not super helpful, but he brought the getaway boat. So... It's a pretty good action scene, though. And the final volume, Apocalypse Comes. Yes. Like, that's really the only way to explain it. There is some sort of planet that has appeared over New York, and they've gone full crisis. There's red yep. skies, <laughs> and the walls of reality are falling, and nobody knows if reality is going to continue. And so we are at the end of the world, and there is looters and people panicking and trying to leave and starting riots, and it's, it is a horrific mess. And Kamala and some of her friends are trying to keep the community together because of Loki's involvement earlier. There's a whole bunch of Asgardian wards on the school. So Mm -hmm. the school is the safe house. Right. And they're trying to get everyone there so that they can hopefully survive the apocalypse. And Kamran shows up briefly and tases her parents and is like, well, you know, the world's burning. Hey, you want to go out in a fiery blaze with me? And she's like, you're gross. So, so she rejects him in his perfect checkbox identity. Yep. Grabs her parents, grabs her friends, takes everybody to the school where she meets up with Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. who is doing her Secret Wars-ness, and drops in for just a, a minute to check on her pseudo-protege and <laughs> see how Kamala is holding up. And the answer is surprisingly well, yes. considering that... The end is nigh. Right. And some of the scenes at the school are nice because, again, you have the entire fairly diverse population thrown into the school together. They have to create, what is it, the non-denominational generic... Non-judgmental religious worship space. (laughs) Where they've got like a duct taped out area. And you see there's like a Buddhist in the corner. They've just got a couple of rugs out and like a little crucifix duct taped to the wall. you got your Muslim prayer area there. you got your carpets, your rugs. Mm -hmm. You've got got rugs, you've got a crucifix, you've got whatever you can get. Exactly. Here you go. Here's the place. And they've got 
water dispensaries and diapers and you know they're actually doing a really good job of keeping the community together in the face of devastation and it's kind of like a very sweet sad moment and at this point we're 17 or 18 issues in but not a lot of time has passed right in in in, in her life i think it's about two or three months right from issue one and then sort of as a last ditch effort Camran, the bad and human, kidnaps the older brother. Mm-hmm. And is attempting to turn him into an inhuman as well. Camran he... just proves himself to be an idiot by assuming that Amir will clearly prefer to have all of these superpowers. And when Amir wakes up from his pseudo-cocoon... Terrigen bath. Cause, yeah, because that did not work. No. When he wakes up, he is not happy. Kamran says, oh, don't worry about Kamala. You know, you'll need your rest, but I'll introduce you to people who can help you. And the world is ending, but you can join me and remake it in our image. (laughs) (laughs) To which Amir replies, what's this we, private school boy? This is where Big Brother comes through. You're new in human family. Your destiny is waiting. Come with me. I already have a family and you are going to stay far away from them. From Kamala, most of all. They will not accept you because you have powers. And Amir's like, I, I didn't want powers. Come on. What? Of course you want powers. Everybody wants superpowers. And Amir says, well, not me. I was happy the way I was. And Kamran, literally pulling out his hair, says, how could you have been possibly happy the way you were? You're a, you're a, a what? A religious freak? An MSA nerd? A Salafi? Yeah, I'm all those things, and I'm not ashamed of it. And then he stands up totally for Kamala, and Kamala sort of overhearing this, and she's stunned. He, he doesn't hate me? I used to be sure that he did. Nope, Big Brother is here. If you think that you can take advantage of my sister, that I would blame her for whatever happened between you two, while you sashay off into the sunset because you're a guy, so it's not your fault, well, my brother... You are incorrect. (laughs) Yay for Big Brother. In which Emir totally comes through in the clutch, is a temporary total badass until his powers wear off. Mm. And, of course, as soon as they get him back to the school, he's like, out of my way! How long have I been unconscious? About about 36 hours. I have so many prayers to make up! And he's off. It's straight to non-denominational, non-judgmental prayer area. And then in in 19, sort of the family side of this arc really comes through. It's at the very end of issue 18. So Kamala's come back with Amir, and Mom is sort of giving her the the tongue lashing that you would expect. Where have you been? It's dangerous out there. Why weren't you here? You should have been with your family. Why were you sneaking off? And all and of this. And after the fact, we realize this is a mom test. This is indeed a mom test. Because Kamala says, I have to tell you something, and this might be the last chance we have. I'm Miss Marvel. And her mom just reaches out and hugs her and goes, Oh, Bita, I know. Mom. A, she's coming through in the clutch. But, oh, that she hates you. had the test. That was the test. It's because I know the answer, and I'm going to know if you're giving me the true answer or not. Love it. They have a great, 
great discussion where she's like... Especially, does Dad know? Oh, oh God, God no. no. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Don't say that so loud. <laughs> Basically, we can't... Kamala, I'm your mother. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how good a liar you think you are. You are not that good. I've known that you've been acting differently. I was, I was worried. I knew you were sneaking out. I thought it might be... It might be boys. You're at this very difficult mm. age. It's hard being a 16-year-old girl, and especially here in America where you might feel all these pressures to fit in, and I don't know what you're doing because you're not going to talk to me about it because you think I don't understand. And so she she has her crowning moment of mom <laughs> greatness where she says, Kamala, I said I'm not mad. You're at a difficult age. Your father and I were worried you would get involved with friends who were bad for you. If the worst thing you do is sneak out to help suffering people, then I thank God for having raised a righteous child. Hugs, hugs, hugs. Hugs all around. And here we are. We're at possibly the end of the world. Essentially the end of the series. And we're getting all of the resolution. We, We have a final scene with the cheerleader that i talked about right. from the beginning and she's come around too and and she has a moment with kamala where she says you know this might be the end of the world so i just want to say i'm sorry i'm sorry for making jokes about you smelling like curry or asking you really insensitive things about your religion or your diet i'm sorry for for being so snotty but i was jealous and they have this moment of like, but you're perfect. You're tall and thin and blonde and white and popular. You have all these things. Everybody loves you. And the cheerleader's like, everyone loves you. Everybody hates me. I don't even know why I'm friends with any of these people. But if I'm not friends, it'll be worse. And I'm in this catch-22 of I don't even like the person that I am. But I'm trying to be more like you because you're honest and you care about people, and you help people, and all of these things. So we have, we have, we've come full 180 of Kamala right. trying to look like this imaginary perfect girl, and the perfect girl wanting being like, to be her. I want to be you. So you've got all of these themes of identity coming around and really finding some level of resolution here mm-hmm. on the brink of Armageddon, which, of course, in the Jersey Cityest way possible, goes out. <laughs> With a multicultural dance party in the gymnasium. And we get our, you know, our final, final resolution where Bruno Mm -hmm. and Kamala both sneak out of the dance. Where Nakia is trying to teach the cheerleader how to dance like the Bollywood (laughs) movies. And the cheerleader's doing it totally wrong. But everyone's getting together and there's a beatboxer and a boombox and everyone's, everyone's jamming. And Bruno and Kamala get to have their moment of this is... This is our chance. I love you. I care about you. And we get we get our final moment of, it's not like I imagined it would be at the end of the world. It doesn't feel like nothing. Standing here with my best friend, it feels like everything. Aww. So there's our coverage of one of the more religious yep. characters and religious-themed comics to come out of the big two. In the last couple of years. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. Both on the let's just read it and enjoy it level. And on the dorkness delight level. It's a great story. (laughs) 
great themes, great characters, great art. We didn't even really mention the art, but it's a very consistent, cool style. Everything about this, I think, comes together to make essentially a perfect comic. It's, It's chock full of themes. We've been talking for like an hour and a bit. There's tons of stuff to talk about. There's lots of time spent addressing these issues that up until now haven't been addressed in a mainstream comic book that people like Kamala have not seen themselves in comics up until this point. So this is a great diversity TM book. <laughs> like, but, but like we said before, the themes are universal enough that it's easy. We found ourselves at times in the book. And I think plenty of people can find themselves in the book based on their background in family and faith and heritage, etc. It does what a book that has diversity as mm. one of its primary themes is supposed to do. It has a very honest, heartfelt, in-depth examination of those things in order for other people to see themselves there. I think that's a pretty good wrap-up for the Miss Marvel title. We'll be right back with listener feedback. Uh, hold on. I think my new dog just teleported into my room. great listeners who send us excellent feedback on a pretty regular basis. Yes. And because the last episode was Star Wars, we have a lot of comments to get through. (laughs) Yes, we do. But first, we have one new iTunes review, complete with five stars, from our buddy Bradley Null. Every episode is a thought-provoking gem, a discussion of symbolism at the crossroads of religion and pop culture. Every episode a rare but beautiful gem. I'm just going to get that like tattooed on me somewhere. It <laughs> is pretty good. Symbolism at the crossroad of religion and pop culture. Can we blurb that somehow on something? I want that. Put that on a t-shirt. Well, thank you, Bradley. As always, your kind comments are very appreciated and there is even more Bradley coming up shortly. Now, For perhaps the first time, we actually have feedback to our response to an iTunes review that we read last episode. We had some fun at the expense of Hulk Carr for referring to our show as something like less dry and academic than you would expect, which was hilarious. It was just that his response to our show seemed to resonate with our response to the TV show iZombie. It's It's surprisingly good. Exactly. By the fifth time you've recommended that show, shouldn't you stop being surprised? Uh, No, because it's still about a crime-fighting zombie. Exactly. We got an email. So, greetings, Emily and Professor Allen. I've been enjoying your podcast and blog from the beginning, and I wanted you to know a few things. I am Hulk Carr, and I was being sincere and not arch in any way in my iTunes review of your podcast. 
I know that many people have a hesitant approach to religious discussion, which is why I said still enjoyable in the review and in its title, to suggest to readers that yours is not a podcast to avoid. Second, I am happy to know that both of you see religion, your own and others, as a positive thing, which I find refreshing, since there are a lot of people who disparage the religious experience and honest and sincere religious expression. And there are a lot of people who distrust or negate the religious experience or expressions of other faiths. Finally, I love that you will talk about things like homoousis, homoousis, pantheism and polytheism, and not sound pedantic or overreaching. Now, speaking of homoousius, as we record this, it was very recently St. Athanasius Day. A strong defender of homoousius against homoousius. That's why he's a theological superstar, a legend, and a pedant. <laughs> Back to Hawkar. I'm a cradle Catholic, and one of my nephews joined an Episcopalian congregation a few years ago, and he and I often have jokey theological discussions. Religion is too often about walking on eggshells topic, though, so there aren't a lot of venues for fun, humorous, or even just non-confrontational discussions. <laughs> I'm glad to have found that your podcast and blog are such a venue. Live long and prosper, Dave Hawkar. Thank you, Dave. I think that's a perfect description of why I wanted to do this in the first place, is... There are not a lot of venues where it is fun, humorous, or just non-confrontational. I think non-confrontational should be the minimum. Then if you can add fun and a little humor, that should be possible in this world. Yeah, but but it usually goes the other way around. You might yes. be able to find something fun, but you're yeah. going to be annoyed and frustrated by it, most likely. <laughs> That's the whole reason I started the Tumblr was because yes. I wanted to follow that Tumblr. And it didn't exist, <laughs> so I had to make it. And a quick note from Ed Moore about a prior episode. I can still vividly recall the evening while attending a local church of God I deigned to call into question the methods of Guy Smiley. Oops, I mean Joel Osteen. It was then, for the first time, that I fully realized the hold he has on his believers. Whew. Let me just say, I am not saying that I am a religious superhero. But it makes me sort of happy deep in my soul to know that I have a nemesis. <laughs> and, that, <sighs> and unfortunately, you regularly have to shelve his books. Because they get checked out, read, and returned on an all-too-continual basis. basis. Yes. <sighs> Let's get that out of our system by turning to Star Wars. All right. Let me say... I was a little nervous discussing Star Wars on this show because we at best, on that topic at least, are generalists. Yes. And our listener base includes a bunch of people who are Star Wars super fans, experts, and specialists. There was a lot of, I really hope that I am not completely and utterly <laughs> incorrect because if we are totally off base, we will know from the... Dreams and dreams of email with citations and annotations that we will receive. So, for example, here we start with Ryan Daly, the host of Give Me Those Star Wars. You see what I mean? Experts! He writes, as per usual, another terrific episode, Middletons. Emily mentioned being open to stories about Ray, Finn, and Poe set before Force Awakens. In addition to the upcoming Poe Dameron comic from Marvel, Lucasfilm released an anthology book called Before the Awakening. 
It includes three short stories, one focused on each new hero, set shortly before the events of the movie. The book is technically a young adult publication, but it's written by Greg Rucka, so while the writing is simple and straightforward, it's no less engrossing or exciting. There's nothing wrong with getting entertainment from the YA section of the bookstore or the library. Absolutely. Destigmatize your middle grade reading. And there's nothing wrong with getting entertaining content from Greg Rucka either. <laughs> that is, yes. That is uh, standard. It's pretty much always the case. I think that might have actually been what I was thinking about of a some sort of anthology. Right? Yeah. Thing. Yeah. No, if you, yeah. If if you had heard that somewhere, and that's what might have gotten, what was cl- clicking in your yeah, memory. Yeah, might have gotten mentioned by our like YA librarian or mm-hmm. been on display or something. Mm-hmm. He continues. I love your analytical approach to the Force from a philosophical point. It is actually very close to the topic of a future episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, wherein I ask if the Force is reactive or proactive, or both or neither. Your discussion in this episode gave me a few things to think about when I do my own recording. Keep up the good work and can't wait to hear the next one, Ryan. And I can't wait to hear us plugged in that episode. Our ears are pricked. We're listening. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. And as promised, a little more from Bradley Null. First up... I'm still paused at the 42-minute mark. I have been for about a day. This episode is having a lasting effect on my life, caused by the Google-based rabbit holes it sent me spiraling down. When I was a kid who read books bigger than he was, and Star Wars, not yet called A New Hope, came out, Lord of the Rings was suggested as a book I would like because I liked that film, Star Wars. I've always felt that the two properties and worlds were part of the same cycle of stories on some deeper level, even if they are technically separate. And then we heard from him again a few days later. This was a powerful episode for me. It reminded me how, as a child, Star Wars felt more holy to me than Christianity. I had also never thought about how the prequels made Jedi more Christian-like, which is weird since when those films were released, I was at the height of my... Blame Christianity for all bad things, phase. I must have thought it was too easy a target. Or maybe that's just further proof they were all a bad dream. Anywho, another great episode, Bradley Null. Thank you very much for writing in, Bradley. We also wanted to take a brief moment here to pass on our condolences to Bradley, who recently suffered a family loss. So we are thinking of you. Our next email comes from Darren Sutherland. Hi, Emily and Professor Allen. I told myself that after my ridiculously long email to the Quarterbin podcast, I was not going to write another email for a while. Just let you have a break. But then you went and dropped a new episode of Dorkness to Light, and it's all about Star Wars, so just to be clear, this email is entirely the professor's fault. Even though I pitched the... You no, know what? No. This is entirely <laughs> your fault. It's entirely my fault. I actually fell in love with Star Wars before I saw the original film. I lived in a small rural town where the theater only showed second-run films, so it was months after its initial release before the movie screened near me. So I had seen the trailers, read the novelization, read the comics, and collected a significant number of action figures before I even had a chance to see the movie. It is possible that I read the novelization before I saw the movie myself. I mentioned that episode I was overseas. We saw it probably a year after the release. And I remember having the novelization... And now that I'm thinking about it, there's probably a 50-50 chance that I actually got that first because mom or dad saw it at the store, you know, at, at the embassy, at the post. And 
realized or remembered, had heard of it, remembered it was a big deal, and I, I may have gotten that as a it's birthday or Christmas. Probably infinitely easier to get oh, mass market paperback books yes. overseas. Absolutely. Darren continues, We purchased the many novels on audio tape, excellent, mm. and would listen to them on long drives throughout the 1990s, and we were completely ready for the prequels on the eventful day in 1999 when our Star Wars fandom was neutralized by the midichlorians. We saw the remaining prequels and have forced ourselves to rewatch them since to see if they were as bad as we remembered. And they were. So we were very cautious about The Force Awakens. We had no intention of seeing it on opening weekend, and we were going to wait to hear the reviews and fan reactions before going. But of course we had one of those unprayed answers that led us to seeing the new movie on opening day with none other than Mike Grell. Yes, we must mention that because it is still difficult to believe it happened. Yeah, no, I'm not jealous. I don't. I don't know why anyone would be. Nor am why I su- would no? I'm. I'm. I'm not bitter or, or su- angry or surprised. So like, <laughs> well, I'm definitely not surprised. <laughs> that is actually true. <laughs> we were very pleased with the new movie. It got most things right and felt like a Star Wars film. It wasn't perfect, but overall, it was quite satisfying. There was no surprise to us about the death of Han Solo. Right. Knowing Harrison Ford's feelings, I never even considered the possibility that he would survive no. the film. No. And I think the way the scene was handled was perfect. In closing, I just want to thank you both for a fun and thought-provoking show. Darren then went on to talk about Lord of the Rings a bit and mentioned that he and Ruth are listed in the credits on the DVD in that long, long list of fan club members. Of Of course course they they are. are. (laughs) And as a result, he thinks that Lord of the Rings would make an excellent episode of Darkness to Light as it is filled with religious allegory. We await the episode. Take care, dear friends. We'll put it on the list. It's getting to be a pretty long list, but it we will put it. It is an increasingly long list. <laughs> and from regular listener Neil Stanifer, another fine show, Middletons. Thank you for your comments on the concept of balance as it relates to the Force. I've never really considered the Force in the context of Buddhism or Taoism, and perhaps that's why I've always thought of balance as a mysticized synonym for moral paralysis. That's sort of what I was getting at in that. Balance always seemed to me a cowardly surrender to strong moral relativism. But in the context of an ascetic life of contemplative seclusion, it makes more sense. Now I picture the Jedi seeking a perfect state of Mu and failing every time. If only they strove instead for a state of perfect helplessness, maybe we wouldn't have all these problems. Your brief reference to the Gnostic heresy as being the first of the church's food fights, had me in stitches for several minutes, then haunted me with sporadic sputter chuckles for the next hour. I could not get out of my head the image of Marcion splatting Polycarp in the schnoz with a spoonful of mashed potatoes. Hey, Polycarp! Apple core! And now I really want to see a history of Christian schisms and heresies turned into a Monty Python-style comedy. Cheers and be well, Neil. Absolutely. I've already said that Lin-Manuel Miranda's next thing should be an adaptation of the Book of Acts. How good would that be? (laughs) Think of the rap battles! Think of them! You know, I was thinking about this, and I mentioned this to Neil, but, you know, if it were just food fights, though, we would not have those awesome gifts of St. Nicholas Slapinarius. That is why religious Tumblr was invented. It was for that that single gift. Smack, 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 smack. Maybe my favorite moment in church history. I'm sorry. Although pouring potato salad on his head could have been a noteworthy moment too, I suppose. Well, maybe. 
And like I said, I never bought the concept of balance myself in terms of the force, but at least Emily presented it in a context that might work. And, you know, just to continue with the long, proud history of crapping all over the prequels, (laughs) like, this is why the prequels don't work. Because you cannot build a structured religion on doing nothing. Like, they're they're ascetics. Another Star Wars superfan, Kyle Benning, from King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, wrote in, Again, buckle in, this is a long one. Very insightful and thoughtful discussion on Star Wars and the Force, Middletons. I really enjoyed it, but I have a few disagreements with Emily's analysis as it pertains to the Force, the Skywalker legacy, and Order. I think she hits it on the head when she says that the Force is not something you can necessarily contain or refer to it as simply good or evil entity. Bad things seem to happen when the scale is tipped too far in either of those directions. The Force is harmony, it's free-flowing, it's natural. So with that, I think it's a misstep to align or equate order with good. In the case of Anakin, if his mission was to bring order to the galaxy, you could say he succeeded on that front. It was a galaxy caught in a massive civil war during the Clone Wars. But then Anakin comes in with Palpatine and the clones, wipes out the Jedi, eliminates the Separatists, and establishes a galactic dictatorship. So following Vader's descent to the dark side, there was 20 years of a sense of order throughout the galaxy. Shredded through vile, horrible actions, but gone is the open armed combat of the Clone Wars that were ripping the galaxy in half. Was it a good and benevolent order? Absolutely not, but it was a sense of order. This is why I like sort of what the Empire, I don't know, created, resulted in, is the First Order. Because really right. that is that, interesting, right? because that is the goal mm-hmm. of the Empire and the later incarnation of the Empire is to bring order to the galaxy. And it's important to recognize, yes, that order and good are not synonyms. Order and peace mm-hmm. are also not synonyms. right. right. Kyle continues, in Star Wars, it seems that the theme running through the first six movies, they mistakenly try to contain and impose a Western set of ideals and structure on the power of the Force, which seems to fall in line much more with an Eastern-based philosophy. In the original trilogy of the Jedi, very much being these blend of Eastern monks and ronin, Mm, living very feudal Japanese or Eastern lifestyles, then they have to square off against the militarized Western totalitarian space government. I thought that was an interesting insight. In the prequel trilogy, you have the Jedi Order, presented much more like the early centuries of the Roman Catholic Church and Holy Roman Empire, taking this Eastern philosophy and trying to fit it into the rigid structure and hierarchy of an organized Western Christianity. And in that system, the Force became abused and mistreated, essentially setting the Jedi up as suffering from the same follies that Martin Luther witnessed. Kyle was writing his feedback as he was listening and added this bit a little later on. But wait, there's more! I'm still listening, and here at the 50-minute mark, you guys have touched on some of the things I mentioned in my tome above. (laughs) Namely, the Protestant Reformation allegory and separation of powers and power corruption. Good for us! But there's more! Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and any time that power, the force, is used as a way to govern or control someone whether it is under the guise of good or evil, it pushes back and topples the apple cart. Essentially, the force is entropy, and imposing Mm. order and structure on it may give you a temporary control until the force picks a new totem to champion anarchy and bring down the system. 
Luke upends the apple cart and, while we don't know the specifics yet, appears to have made the same mistake that the old Jedi Council did. A new Republic is formed, with Jedi and the Force being a core element. A new champion of anarchy comes along in Ben Solo and brings down the system. Now it appears he is doomed to make the same mistake as Vader, to wield the Force to impose a new empire that is, again, doomed to fail. Like Emily said, maybe it's the swinging of the pendulum back and forth, and we are essentially witnessing each of these cycles getting shorter and shorter Mm. until maybe... True balance is finally found, and neither side is in position to use the Force as a pillar of some form of government or religious-based ruling society. It sounds like the Force is calling for states' rights, religious freedom, and little to no central government or organized religion used in the ruling capacity. OMG, the Force is the living embodiment of the Constitution with some mystical wizard powers thrown in. Sincerely, Kyle Benning. (laughs) Again, (laughs) you guys do know who wrote the new cantina music, right? Lin-Manuel Miranda! <laughs> it all comes back to Hamilton. Yeah, I did love that political analysis, Kyle. And I'm glad that we hit on a few points that he was thinking of. Uh, it gives me confidence that we're on the right track after all. And again, the, so the more I think about it, I think light and dark has to do with, again, power and control as much as anything else. And responsibly or irresponsibly dealing with those things. It does convince me more and more that force wielders are not the best candidates for governmental leadership. No. (laughs) Again, thanks for the listen. And of course, thanks for the feedback. Next up is Gene Hendricks. Emily and Alan, something you might find interesting is that after my decision to stop being a Christian and before I found out about the Norse religion, I thought about following the Jedi path. As you might expect, this didn't work out, mainly because it was an entirely online thing in the 90s when online was still in Mm. its infancy and I couldn't actually sit down and talk to anyone about it. This was also before episode one, where we learned that the Jedi are really a cult that kidnaps and indoctrinates children. <laughs> yeah, it might not be the best thing to choose as a life philosophy. Maybe not. I always liked how the Force was portrayed in the original movies as having an upside and a downside. The dark was quicker and easier to use, but ended up dominating your being. The light was harder to learn to use, but you maintain control of your own life. I don't know if this is so much two versions of the Force, or if the user's intentions shape the tool. To the discussion of balance, I wonder if the way to achieve true balance would be to realize there is no light versus dark, but just the Force. Mm. I'm always personally kind of of that opinion, that the the light side, dark side, as a dichotomy, is is a false dichotomy. It's something that humans have imposed upon it, then... That which actually exists. Agreed. Yeah. I I like the way that Gene said that of maintaining self-control. Like, really, I sort of like that Mm -hmm. is the idea of the the point of the light side training is not that it takes longer to learn how to use the light side of the force. It's that you're spending all that time learning self-control. And uh, Ben Solo has none. Like, (laughs) zero. Right. Gene continues, of course, the redemption of Vader in Return of the Jedi illustrates my major problem that I have with the idea of absolution, mainly how it is in Catholicism. Luke, I'm sorry for what I've done in my life, you know, killing men, women, and children for 20 years, but I saved you and I killed one more guy and it was the right guy, so I get to go to the good place, right? In my worldview slash religion, your life is a sum total of your actions, and just being really, really sorry for doing all of the bad things doesn't get you off the hook. There's no get out of Niflheim free card, if you will. Mm. Gene Hendricks. P.S. Yes, the man and woman stranded on a new planet need to populate it is much more a Ragnarok thing than a Genesis thing. Proud Papa Allen pats Emily on the back for getting that right. Score! Catastrophe and you catastrophe. 
Ooh. right here to bring us full Tolkien. <laughs> and now we have confession time. Which is rapidly becoming an ongoing feature. Yes, where listeners share their particular histories with faith. And this time it's the Sutherland, specifically this was Darren writing in. Ruth and I are both Christians, and we used to attend church regularly. But sadly, we've been driven away by too many negative examples of religion mixing with politics. I don't want to get political because we try to not judge others based on their political beliefs and don't want to be judged based on ours. But sadly, that's how we felt a couple of instances at churches. One example was during the 1990s, one of the times that Bill Clinton was running. We were in church and the pastor devoted his sermon to explaining that anyone who voted Democratic was a sinner and not a Christian. We got up and walked out of the church and stayed away for several years. In the 2000s, we found a new church that we loved. The pastor was wonderful and coined a couple of our favorite phrases, including unprayed answers. Another phrase he often used to say was intended to illustrate that you shouldn't judge others. He would say, Jesus always reaches out with an open hand, not a pointed finger. A beautifully simple and true statement. He was at the church for several years, and we attended regularly. But following a change in leadership, he suddenly fell out of favor because he wasn't considered conservative, and he was forced to leave. We left the church following that, and since then, we've instead focused on finding daily devotionals that are both spiritual and educational. An example of that would be Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. So many days it seemed that the reading was tailor-made for what we needed to hear that day, and that's been a real blessing. So there, another email from us, just what you wanted. Have a good Friday and a wonderful Easter Sunday. Well, thank you for sharing that, Darren. And it seems that Chad's story, and, and somewhat Emily's, yes, are not unique to millennials. You know, I've, I actually had somewhat similar experiences in the online world, trying to find Christian community online. I end up being far too conservative for progressive Christian sites and way too liberal for the conservative evangelical sites. I think some of those sites just at sign up, it's like, Put in your name and your email address and check this box, I agree to the terms and conditions and check this box, I agree to a seven-day literal 8,000-year-old planet and otherwise you don't get in. Exactly. Now, we've been fortunate not to face that in our church. It was pretty cool in the last election cycle, walking to worship through a parking lot with roughly equal numbers of Romney and Obama bumper stickers. But we know that that is a very rare scenario yeah to date one of my proudest moments was the day that our church got picketed by ultra conservative Mm -hmm. pro-lifers with the aborted fetus signs and like were screaming at us for not being pro-life enough just giving out you know diapers to expectant mothers and providing prenatal counseling and we we weren't pro-life enough or pro-life in there narrowly defined way and so we deserve to be picketed i think we liked the mothers as much as the babies and they weren't a fan of that that was a problem that was a problem and finally we will end with trevor williams who wrote not just to us but a handful of other podcasters as well he wrote about the deep depression that he'd been going through for the last year and how a bunch of podcasts including ours had helped to pull him through along with counseling and talking things out with friends of course He said that hearing happy people passionately talking about something I'm passionate about was a shining light in my mire of darkness. Again, I'm better now, 
but just wanted to personally thank you and several other podcasters for unknowingly being instrumental in saving me. Sounds true dramatic, I'm sure, but it's true. And he did add this specifically for us. A bit of my midlife crisis last year was faith-related, so Darkness to Light has been one of my favorites, although two infrequent listens. Always plan to comment on each podcast I listen to, but I listen while driving and then can't seem to keep up with all the podcasts I follow. Again, thanks to you both for keeping me entertained and maybe bringing me back to God one day. Again, we can't thank our listeners enough for the quantity and quality. quality, the depth of the feedback, both on topic and personally. It is very humbling to be on this side of the mic with a lot of the responses that we get. We always knew that this was an interesting topic for us because this is just what our conversations sound like. That is true. And we thought maybe a couple people would be interested in this. We knew a few of our friends might Mm -hmm. listen to us out of pity, but I don't think we really (laughs) guessed how much this show would resonate with people across the religion and faith spectrum. I always feel really honored when agnostics and atheists and people that are really wrestling with their faith Mm -hmm. listen to our show and send us feedback like i love all feedback but that is my favorite because it's like you don't even necessarily agree with us but you find something interesting in here and that makes it mean even more it really it it is it is amazing It's, it's been an amazing experience absolutely so as you can tell we do love hearing from you if you want to talk to us about Miss Marvel or anything else, always can send in feedback to us and we will read it. And since we're ending this episode again with some Star Wars-centric content... And we're recording this at the start of May. Oh, that is true. Our closing tag is still quite applicable. May the Force be with you. And also with you. Special thanks to Stella from the podcast Batgirl to Oracle for providing additional voices in this episode. While you're waiting for the next podcast episode, check out our websites. DarknessToLight.blogspot.com contains reviews, essays, and other similar ramblings. And DarknessToLight.tumblr.com which contains some of that material, as well as top tens, cool photographs, memes, and religious puns. We also run a general interest comic book podcast network, Relatively Geeky. That content can be found at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or by searching iTunes for Relatively Geeky. Let us know what you think of this topic, this episode, or this podcast in general feel free to send your thoughts to us at darknesstolight at gmail.com. We would also appreciate any ratings or reviews left for the podcast in the iTunes store to help like-minded people find us. Our intro, outro, and promo music is by Anderson Kale. Check them out at andersonkale.com or search iTunes to purchase their music. Thanks for listening.